from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Melanie Benjamin is the author of four novels and two other books under the name Melanie Hauser. Her book, The Aviator's Wife, was a New York Times bestseller and was optioned for a motion picture. Her latest book is The Swans of Fifth Avenue, a historical fiction about Truman Capote and Babe Paley. It was recently chosen as the number one indie next pick for February 2016 by the American Booksellers Association. Melody Benjamin will be in town at the Thurber House on January 27th. More information about that visit can be found at www.crafttheshow.com. Welcome to Craft, Melody Benjamin. Thanks for having me. It's my second time. Yes, yeah. Uh, we yeah. were we talked, I think, in 2011 or something like that. Okay, yeah, sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> when we were both, <laughs> you know, uh, right right when we were in our 20s. Um, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fresh. Baby, ba- you were a baby talk show host. Yeah, I, I had hair. Uh-huh. Uh, actually, I didn't uh, <laughs> even then. So. I don't think you did. No, I no. don't think you did. No, not even then. <laughs> So, tell me about The Swans of Fifth Avenue, and uh, your newest uh, historical novel that has been published. What drew you to the story of Truman Capote and Babe Paley? Um, you know, I am a Midwest girl at myself. I was born in Indianapolis and, and, and lived there until my adult life. And yet, I always loved and dreamed of Manhattan in New York. And for some reason, and I don't know how I ever found it, in Indianapolis. Early on, I got my hands on copies of Vanity Fair and the New Yorker magazine. Mm-hmm. I honestly have no idea where I found those in Indiana back in the 70s, but I did. And you know, I just always dreamed of New York. So I was always drawn, especially to New York in the 50s and 60s. Um, and I one day was in my own, uh, in my office looking for a, an idea for a new book. You know, sometimes that happens. Your publisher says, okay, what's next? And I had a copy of Truman Capote's Answered Prayers, which was the only uh, book of his that I'd ever written. And it's an unfinished book, a collection of short stories. And one of the stories in there is called La Cote Basque 1965. And I had a vague recollection that when that story was published, it was published in 1975 in Esquire magazine, that it had resulted in a great big fat literary scandal. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that's a good reason to write a book about a literary scandal. So I started to do the research and I just was swept into this era that I'd always longed, you know, kind of to be part of the fifties and sixties, New York. And I was really drawn to the relationship between Truman Capote, a very young Truman Capote at the time. And um, this amazing, wonderful socialite named Babe Paley. And I found that their relationship was truly um, an unconventional love affair of sorts. And I was just kind of just intrigued by exploring how this all began and how it ended in this, you know, horrible literary scandal that, mm-hmm. that, that just kind of broke so many people, including Truman. So what, when you started out, what were your expectations? And uh, then we can talk about maybe how they were confounded by uh, the research you did. You walked into it thinking this is a really great, juicy literary scandal. And I'm yeah. sure you found that. But what were some of the things that surprised you? Um, well, you know, I was really, really surprised by... Um, I didn't know that much about Truman's early life. Uh, I mean, I knew vaguely, obviously, I think everyone knows that he's the character, the the basis for the character Dill in To Kill a Mockingbird, and that he grew up with Harper Lee. Um, But really reading about his his childhood, it's it's heartbreaking how abandoned he was by his parents. And I think I found that lost little boy in Truman Capote. I really mainly only knew him from the late-in-life celebrity. You know, the Truman Capote you would see on The Tonight Show. Right. Kind of a, 
a, a campy figure, you know, and very bloated and, and unrecognizable. And when I saw a photo of Truman in 1955, I, my breath was taken away. I mean, he was just beautiful and, and golden and had so much promise, which in some ways he fulfilled, in some ways he didn't. So I really think discovering the vulnerable side of Truman Capote, which is not always easy to find, um, was a really, really uh, great surprise for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about Babe Paley? I mean, she's the other, I think, really big figure in this mm-hmm. in this novel. What the kinds of things did you research about her? I mean, she seems more like a more difficult character to, to find anything about because she didn't pursue celebrity in the way I think uh, that right. Capote did. And uh, it must be more difficult to find out about her. Well, it's difficult, but it's also creatively freeing for me as a writer because it allows me to imagine a lot more. Um, Babe, I only knew her very vaguely as this fabulous socialite. She was the first woman introduced, first person introduced into the International Best Dressed Hall of Fame. So she's a fashion icon today. She was married to, to William S. Paley, the founder of CBS. So they were just like the ultimate it couple. And even in her obituaries, though, many people described her as the first trophy wife, which in a way she was. <laughs> wow. <laughs> she really was. What an awful. And, um, I mean, yeah, well, Paley was Jewish and um, felt very much an outsider in New York society. And he married this this beautiful shiksa and got, and she, you know, kind of got him entree into a lot of places he wouldn't have gone. Um, but there was so much more to her, but yet you're right. It's, it's hard to find it and allows my, my, uh, creative, um, juices to flow, but she was so, um, ultimately her life was very sad because of the perfect, perfect exterior that she maintained and presented to the world. And her life was about being seen and being photographed and wearing fabulous clothes and taking care of Bill Paley. But um, she too, I think, was similarly wounded to Truman. And that's what I love to explore. They both (laughs) had very lonely childhoods. And they very much suffered, I think, from the expectation that she she was raised only to be pretty and to marry wealthy. And that that that's a very hard thing to live up to. And once you've maintained that, then your interior life just kind of begins to crumble. I think when she met Truman, she found a way to kind of reignite that interior life. She also had, um, she suffered an accident when she was 19. It's something that's always glossed over in her biographies that basically disfigured her face. She was beautiful then, and even already at 19, known for her beauty. And her father who was a pioneering brain surgeon, called in all these plastic surgeon specialists, and it was kind of a new um, field in those days, who basically reconstructed her face. And, and I think for a woman who grew up, you know, and, and lived her life known for her face, that she had to hide it. You know, she had to hide the scars. She had to hide the scars that were exterior and the scars that were interior. So, and again, I found her to be very fascinating and wounded and sad and she she kind of touched my heart mm-hmm. um in a way that i don't think most people would think of babe paley being able to do yeah yeah she seems like a fairly remote kind of like a fashion yeah. icon isn't somebody you she can be remote I, she can be remote but my job as a novelist is to find the heart and i, I hope i did mm-hmm. i'm curious about something you said she was the first woman inducted into the international best dressed hall of fame right mm-hmm. so Oh, yeah. before then, fashion. First person, just the first person. Oh, the first, the first person. person. Okay, I was the say. very first person. All right, yeah. that makes sense because I thought, what was it? It's just like a string of guys in tuxedos ahead of that. Didn't no. make any sense to me. <laughs> no. Yeah, you know, because fashion seems yeah. to more yeah. not necessarily be about uh, guys. Or at least in my case, it has nothing to do with uh, my uh, way that I dress. 
So t- t- <laughs> there's a, a very famous ball that uh, Truman Capote put on that um, you cover in the book called the Black and White Ball. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this. Uh, it, it, it was uh, one of the things that I think led up to sort of the, the split, if I'm um, getting my, my facts in order. But one of the things I'm curious about is as you went through all this and the cover of the book is got a black and white uh, image of what I assume to be Babe Paley, and then it's in red. And uh, what what is your imagination of attending that ball? Oh, that was so much fun. I think that whole sequence was the most fun to write. In uh, 1966, after the publication of In Cold Blood, which was is Truman's masterpiece. And it, it is an amazing novel. He claimed, or not novel, it's, it's nonfiction. He claimed he had invented the form of a nonfiction novel, you know, based on facts. And we all know about In Cold Blood. Uh, he was on top of the world. He was the literary, he had always been a literary darling, but this one, was, you know, was it, it elevated him even further. And he decided to celebrate. <laughs> so he invited 500 of his closest friends to as one the does. Plaza Ballroom. Yeah. Yes, as one does. Um, and he was really devilish. There's an amazing book about the right uh, about the the black and white ball called The Party of the Century that I highly recommend. It goes into much more detail than I can about how how he cultivated the list. He tells some people they were invited and then they weren't, and, and it was just a big <laughs> social thing in New York. I know Truman was such a devil. Um, so he threw this party in the in the plaza, and it was a black and white ball. Everyone had to dress black and white with masks. Um, and of course, all the society, it was in honor of Catherine Graham, um, the publisher of the Washington Post, whose husband had recently committed suicide. They decided she needed cheering up. It was his excuse. He couldn't really throw it in his own honor. And anyway, it was just the epitome of New York, 1966. And all the beautiful people were there. The young, beautiful people like Mia Farrow, the older, beautiful people like the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and everyone in between. And... Then when it was over, though, it seemed to me it when that was over, the, the 60s took over. That was the last dance of people like Babe and Gloria Guinness and even Truman Capote. And then after that, it's like the horror of the 60s really kind of took root. And it was the, a, it was the pinnacle of Truman's life, I think. Mm-hmm. He never really wrote much after In Cold Blood. He had a horrible case of, of what do I write next to follow this up. And he, that's what drove him a few years later to write this short story in which he betrayed all of Babe's secrets she'd ever told him, all the secrets his society ladies had ever told him. And they banished him. They never spoke to him again. Babe died of cancer only a couple of years later. And Truman kind of went on that downward spiral to becoming the Truman Capote I remembered. Mm-hmm. That kind of pathetic figure at the end of his life. So so the black and white ball was delicious fun to write and Frank Sinatra's in there and it's just so much fun. But it really does represent, I think, the pinnacle and everything goes downhill from there. So if I have to imagine as a writer and someone uh, who's writing about all these fashion icons, you had to think if I had been invited to the ball, what you might have worn. For a guy it's easy, right? A tux. <laughs> Yeah, everyone, we, yeah, except for Norman Mailer, who showed up in a dirty trench coat, but <laughs> <laughs> and and picked a fight with everyone, right? As yeah, Norman Mailer, did. as, as he um, would. So, so uh, yeah, I, I'm curious. So, like, like you, you, did you ever think about what kind of mask you would wear? Because that was one of the things that uh, I thought of as I was. I was like, okay, if I go to this ball and you see these pictures, where do you go for this stuff? Where do you get the the mask? What would you wear? 
Well, at the time, everyone went to Halston, who was a hat designer at Bergdorf then, and then he became a famous you know, fashion design, designer in the 70s. So everyone went to Halston, basically, to have the masks done, um, except for Truman, who got a dime store mask, like Holly Golightly did in Breakfast at Tiffany's. She, he kind of emulated that. Um, I guess I would have gone to Bergdorf. That's where everybody went. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm a Midwestern girl, like I said. It was part of the fun in writing this book was kind of indulging... Yeah, I got my my clothes were from Sears. <laughs> right. Growing yes. up, yeah, tough skins. You go once a year. Yeah, tough skins. You go once a year when school started, and you get your school wardrobe from Sears. That that was it for me. Right. So it was a uh, very fun to kind of live in this world vicariously, uh, and uh, the world of Burkdorf's. I actually went to Burkdorf's for for research. <laughs> research. I, I was terrified. Right. Yeah, well, I didn't buy anything. I thought they'd throw me out, you know. I just didn't <laughs> feel like, <laughs> I felt like I should show them. Now, wait a minute. Uh-huh. You're a highly successful author. You've got uh, all these credentials behind you, and you're worried about going into Burkdorf's. Well, because you can't take the Midwest out of the, the rider, no matter how hard you try <laughs> I just didn't feel glamorous enough, and mm-hmm. um, I didn't buy anything. Oh my goodness, I didn't buy anything. But I have to admit, um, as I'm planning for my book tour, which is taking me to Columbus, and I'm so excited to go back to the Thurber House, mm-hmm. I have been um, indulging a little bit. Of, I feel I have to live up to the book in a way, mm-hmm. and many of the events planned for the book tour have a there. There are several black and white themed events, and cocktail events, and fashion events, and. Again, I feel a little out of my element, but it's also fun mm-hmm. um, to indulge. But I still haven't been able to buy anything from Bergdorf's. I just, I just can't bring myself to do it. Well, when you come to Columbus, you know, we've got a very high-end store called Coals. Uh, and uh, <laughs> you, can, you can go there. Coal, that sounds fascinating. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I've never heard of that. Right, yeah. no, never. It's uh, only... You it's don't a, have Sears anymore? We have Sears, <laughs> and they do have clothing. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, I can't say that I can remember the last time I bought anything at at a Sears. That's my fashion. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a uh, a clearance rack kind of guy. Yeah, well, men have it easier. Yes, men we do. It's, there is no doubt I, about that. And there's so many male authors who, when they go on book tour, all they pack is a pair of jeans and a tweed jacket. And you know, right. the rest of women have a little bit more to have to live up to. And and uh, uh, insanely uncomfortable shoes. Uh, I was at a shoe yeah. store with my wife, and I said, you know, these are torture devices. I don't know why anyone would wear them. Yeah. Yeah, I can't do that. Yeah. yeah. I did buy some pretty new shoes, but they're not like, you know, I can't. I can't do the high heel stiletto right. thing anymore. Yeah, I don't do it either. On your face. Oh, oh darn. Yeah, I know. It's, it's too bad. <laughs> I was looking forward to that. It was, uh, I do have great gams. On your Facebook page, okay. you mentioned that you wrote The Swans of Fifth Avenue in five months and turned it in mm-hmm. around Labor Day of 2014. And that was the longest gestation period ever for a book of yours. Or this has, since then has mm-hmm. been since to the publication. Why did it take longer mm-hmm. to be born? What was there that you were working on? I was, oh, um, I wasn't, it was my publisher, um, you know, publishers set their list at least a year in advance, mm-hmm. right? And okay. so, um, we, and, and when they bring a book out, is a very, it's something they take a lot of care in determining. Um, I had great success with books coming out in January with um, Alice I Have Been, and then definitely late Aviator's Wife. And in 2014, when I turned this book in in Labor Day, uh, there was no way they were going to fit me in January 2015. That's just simply not enough time to prepare a book for publication. Okay. Um, so they they had to do 2016, which 
I was fine with. And it, and certainly, I mean, it means that there's been so much done for this book in-house, the production side, and then um, the the pre-pub uh, side, which is very, very important to, to get people talking about the book before it comes up. That's a big part of it. Um, so on the one hand, I'm a pre- I was definitely very appreciative and I'm happy uh, coming out in January again. It, but it, it's a long time, you know, to think about a book and you kind of almost, you don't get tired of it, but still it, it just seems like it was never going to happen. And mm-hmm. now that it is, it's a little, it's a, like a lot to take. And in the meantime, I wrote um, two other books. No, yes. I don't know how many books I write. Yeah, I think I wrote two books since I turned this in. No, a book and a half. Okay. Uh, and one we decided not to publish and the other one I'm working on now. But okay. um, So I've been busy writing. It's not like I've been sitting around twiddling my thumb. Right. But um, yeah, it does seem as if this book was never going to come out and now that it is, it's I'm kind of having to pinch myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm curious about that. Is it, it almost sounds that I'm very out of the, the literary publishing world. I, I have no idea, but... They say, mm-hmm. we need to bring your books out in January because you can't brought them out before in January. I mean, it, it almost sounds like uh, uh, superstition a little bit. Is there a superstition? No, no, no. It's based on, you know, data. Right. <laughs> <laughs> <My> bo- <laughs> January has traditionally been a quieter time of the year to publish. It's, okay. so it's easier for a book to get attention in January, especially if you're not a Stephen King or a John Irving, right? Okay. Although I have to say this January is more crowded than it has been. I think other people are noticing this. Fall is traditionally the time when um, it's the most crowded time of the year for publishing. So it's harder for books to get review attention, uh, to be, you know, in the opera, to be invited to Thurber House. It's just more crowded. And it is when the bigger authors, their books tend to come out. So this is all based on, I mean, publishing knows. You know, summer is when you bring out the beach books. You know, the books that people are going to want to read uh, on vacation. Fall is when you bring out the more literary books that, that people may be buying for Christmas. January, again, has been traditionally kind of a slower time, although now I see, I think it's getting a little busier. But um, it, it's all based on data. It's not superstition. Okay. My books did well in January, so, you know, why rock the boat? Right, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, just two other questions. The first is, you had mentioned uh, you're working on another book. Can you? Are you the kind of author that can give us a sneak peek, or is that something you no. don't talk about ahead of time? No, yeah, Never. I don't talk about it ahead of time. Okay. Sometimes I finish the book and I realize it's not the book I wanted to write at that point. Sometimes it takes me to the end to figure it out, and it. I've had that happen recently a couple times with books I wrote and then decided not to publish, so I don't want to get people's hopes up for something I might ultimately decide, I don't think it's good enough. Okay. And the other question is, uh, with Truman Capote's writing, and as you talked about it, he was, uh, he betrayed confidences um, and things like that, even though I think that the characters were, I mean, they were thinly veiled representations of the people that but he knew. Everyone in their world knew exactly who <laughs> he was talking about. He didn't veil them that thinly. <laughs> right. And I was reading about the one where uh, there was a shooting in the house and, um, uh, you know, one person died. And then when it came out, um, the person who had shot her husband, you know, apparently committed suicide because knew that this book yes. was coming out. Um, yes. Is this like a cautionary tale for you? I'm, I'm curious because you're a fiction <laughs> writer. Do you ever mm-hmm, say, mm-hmm. wow, I should stick to historical fiction because if I chose to write something else that people could see themselves in, there's all this danger. I do feel the irony of writing a book about a writer 
who betrayed the secrets of his friends in his fiction for his own personal gain. And I'm a writer and I'm writing about real people who lived. <laughs> I find I, I, I am very aware of the irony. The difference is, as you pointed out, these are not people I knew personally. Right. They're not friends. They're dead for one thing. So right. That, that kind of removed. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I do find it interesting. Right. Truman's a writer. You know, they're all, I have a, I have a sweatshirt that says, uh, be careful, be careful, or I'll put you in my novel. Mm, um, you know, good. I think novelists have that weapon that they mostly choose not to wield, which is putting people they know, getting revenge, perhaps, in their writing. Uh, I would never do that. I think I am much more interested in, again, these lives that have already been lived than I am in my own life, and my own life certainly includes people I know. So I'm just not interested in that um, that kind of thing. Um, but I, again, I, I do, I'm aware of the irony that I am writing about a writer who chose to do all that. I, I thought that was really fascinating. It was like, how much do you trust the writer in your life? You know, whose stories are, who owns our stories? That's a big part of the book. Do we own our stories? Can anyone use them? Truman certainly felt he could use them. Um, but it, it's, it's something to talk about, certainly. It's been great talking to you, Melanie Benjamin, and I'm really looking forward to you coming to town on January 27th with the Thurber House. And uh, all that information will be on our website. And have a great day. Thanks. You too, Doug. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.